0: And it was already going to be tight without starting late, so we'll see what happens. Good morning. Good to see you. Well, I wasn't supposed to be up here, but of course Jeff is not doing well, so here I am. Hopefully we'll see him up here next week. That being the case, and I was finished with Jonah and not quite ready to start with the next book I'm working on, I thought, how about we look at the tabernacle? Because there's very little to look at there, right? Um, I'm attempting in one class to cover just the furniture of the tabernacle and the picture that we have of Christ in it. So it may happen, it probably won't. If not, I'm sure Jeff will be fine with not teaching next week as well. So let's pray. And uh, let's, let's go to Exodus 25. We'll be jumping through a lot of different passages in Exodus. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at that. Dan, would you lead us in prayer, please, sir? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you so much. We thank you for this opportunity to be together and build you. And we pray that you would bless Kelly as he teaches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's look at Exodus chapter 25. In verse 1, we read this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. I think that's a a key phrase in looking at the tabernacle according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just as you you shall construct it." The tabernacle, or the sanctuary, was a specifically divinely designed tent of residence. It was known as the tent of Jehovah, just like Moses' tent was known as the tent of Moses. His desire was to reside among his people. When we take a look at Scripture, throughout Scripture, we find this consistent, right from the very beginning, that it's always been God's desire to be in fellowship, to be with his people. And even though man messes it up, God makes it possible for that to be a reality. We see that the picture that we find in the tabernacle will be no different than how he's always intended to be that fellowship be by His enabling, His doing, that we find in Christ. The tabernacle was used for 400 years before the temple took its place. And then the temple, made in the same pattern, was used until 70 AD when Rome destroyed it. It's been estimated that the tabernacle cost... Uh, 25 million dollars that would be 1.2 billion Canadian dollars <laughs> all for a tent for a traveling tent some people have called it God's mobile home like Yeah, that's someone's rendition of it yeah so this was a costly <clears throat> tabernacle but it was not built from taxes It was built from freely giving of the people the $25 million worth in today's money. It would have come from the spoils they they took from Egypt, from the victory that God had given them. The structure itself, well, God had a plan for how he wanted his house to be designed. And God wanted it all completed his way, Exactly. He didn't ask for any ideas he didn't take any suggestions he said this is how you will approach me I think that's an incredible lesson for us to learn God desires fellowship with his people and he has made a way that this is possible but it is his way he does not it is not in his character anywhere in scripture where he he asks what are your thoughts what are your ideas what should we do about this? How should we change this? Is he will be approached. He has made it possible that he will be approached his way. The outer court was uh, 50 cubits, or 75 feet by 100 cubits, 150 feet. So 150 feet by 75 feet. Not really that big when you think of how many people it's servicing. You know, it's been estimated to be at a minimum of, I think it was 1.3 1.5 million people that were in transit. And so it's not that big. There has also been, uh, some, some think that in order to accommodate that many people with the sacrifices that would have to be done, there was probably trenches that were dug from under, or from under the tabernacle, from the tabernacle out through the encampment. So that the blood would be able to drain. So I'm thinking, if there's that much blood that's being drained, is that much sacrifice going on every morning? You wake up and all the tents face the tabernacle, so all you know, you're, you're facing, you know, the, the presence of God when you walk out of your tent, but you're also smelling the necessity of death in order for there to be this relationship. I guess almost a daily reminder. The tabernacle itself, what is called the tabernacle proper, you can find in chapter 26. We're not going to read through that, but I'll give you a summary of it. Uh, the total size of the tabernacle proper, the whole tabernacle, it would be uh, 45 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. The holy place, so that would be the first room you walk into, would be 30 feet by 15 by 15. And then the holy of holies, where God's presence would be, would be 15 by 15 by 15. Now there was furniture that was placed in the tabernacle and also in the outer court. And that's really what I want us to spend most of our time with. Um, And what I want us to do is we're going to start from inside the Holy of Holies, work our way out through the holy place into the courtyard, and just look at the the details, the specifics of the construction, the size, what it was, the material it was made out of. See how specific God is. And then once we've gone outside, then we're going to come back in and see just what it would be for the worshiper at the time. As they come back in and what's the first piece of furniture they see, what's the second... As the priest goes into the holy place, what would he see? And then into the Holy of Holies, what would there be? And I want us to see the picture that God is giving us in that for us in the new covenant. So we would begin inside out with the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, we would find the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is the box at the bottom of this picture. On top of that would be the mercy seat, and then you have the cherubim. So the Ark of the Covenant, let's take a look at this. Go to chapter 25, since we're there, let's look at verse 10. They shall construct an Ark of Akisha wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. So we see that it's made of pure gold and akisha wood, akisha wood being a a very sturdy wood, one that could handle uh, changing climates well. Its dimensions would be three foot by nine inches and two feet by three inches. and God's very specific. Then we see the mercy seat. That's the lid on top. And in verse we pick up in verse 17 for this. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. So here we see that it's made of blue. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. The mercy seat is made of pure gold. It's, cover, uh, it's covering. It's the covering for the ark where God met with the people. Blood of the annual atonement was sprinkled here. So they would make the sacrifice out at the altar for first the, the bull for the high priest and his family, go in, sprinkle the blood onto the mercy seat, then go back out and make the sacrifice with the goat, go back in and then sprinkle the blood of the goat onto the mercy seat. And the goat would be, for the, uh, would be the sacrifice for the whole nation. And this is where they would come into the very presence of God, where the high priest, representing the people, would come into the presence of God. Now, between the Holy of Holies and the holy place, we find the veil. In chapter 26, uh, verses 31 to 34, we get the description of that. Chapter 26, verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen... It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workmen. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their, um, their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasp and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies." You shall put the mercy seat on the ark and the testimony of the Holy of Holies. So the veil we find is made of blue, purple, and scarlet material in linen. It separated the Holy of Holies, the room that, where God's very presence would be, from the holy place. So it is a separation between God and the people. Its dimensions the curtain's dimensions would be 15 feet by 15 feet, which is really interesting, and we'll read the scripture on that a little later when you think about how the veil ripped at Christ's death from top to bottom. It's 15 feet tall. Then we go into the holy place, and here we find the gold altar, the lampstand, and the table of showbread. Let's look at the golden altar first. The golden altar are the altar of incense. Chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place of burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. And uh, see, its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. You shall make a gold molding all all around for it. So it was made of acacia wood and pure gold. Incense uh, would be burning perpetually before the Lord, and we'll talk about what that means a little later. And its dimensions: one and a half feet by one and a half feet by three feet. So again, God is very specific. Notice through all this, he doesn't say, you know, uh, let's let's have a room here and then put put an ark in it. Uh, let's have a let's let's have a golden uh, altar of incense. Just make one. But he's very specific about what he would have. Also, we find in the holy place would be the lampstand or the candlestick. Here we find the description back in chapter 25. And in verse 31, it reads Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. So it also is made of pure gold. It was light for the tabernacle, uh, and it would be continually burning. And so it had to, the fuel had to be continually filled, and it, they used olive oil for that. Its dimensions are not known. But it would have to produce enough light to light up the, the whole tabernacle. Then we move on, still in the holy, of, holy place, the table of showbread. There in chapter 25, verses 23 to 24. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. Again, this was made of pure gold and covered um, over acacia wood. It held 12 loaves of bread, each loaf representing one of the tribes of Israel. And the priest would eat this bread and then replace it every Sabbath. So there's a communion that's shown here between the nation and God with the priests being the mediator. Its dimensions, three foot by 18 inches by two foot, three inches. Now that's all the furniture that's in the tabernacle proper. Then we move outside to the outer court. And in the outer court, there's two, uh, two uh, pieces of furniture that we find. The one that would sit right in front of the tabernacle that the priests would use before entering the tabernacle and also before approaching the, the altar, which is what was in front of it, would be the bronze laver. It kind of looks like a great big bird bath. We find the description of it in chapter 30. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 30. We read this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons, so the priests, shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they, uh, when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So here the priest would cleanse themselves before ministering, either in the tabernacle or at the altar. It was made of bronze. And its dimensions also is not specified then in front of it we find the bronze altar and again you look at the size of it and think of how much sacrifice is going on for the whole nation and and you start to think yeah there, there was a lot of activity going on in this little place we find the description of it in chapter 27 verses 1 and 2 you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So again, made of acacia wood and of bronze. The animals were sacrificed for sin offerings here. And its dim- dimensions would be seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet. So there's all the specifications of the furniture. What it's made of, the size that it would be for most of them. But we find, and I, I think it's really interesting, when you read through chapter 11 of Hebrews and you find that these people were people of faith, and you also find that their faith, though they were Old Testament saints, their faith was in Christ. This is what makes them saints. Their faith was in Christ. There was something that we don't understand all of it, but you you go through that list, and there was something about the Old Covenant that brought them to to this understanding. And so we can look into the Old Covenant, we can look at the tabernacle and see a clear picture of Christ and find that it is by Christ that we approach God. A.B. Simpson said it like this, just as in the architect's plan, we can understand the future building better, so in this pattern from the mount, We can understand as nowhere else that glorious temple of which Christ is the cornerstone, and we also as living stones are built up in Him. 1 Peter 2.25 says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. (coughs) This is this is fun for me, because you know I've told you before that I need pictures, and this is one great big picture. There's a traveling tabernacle that goes around the United States, and it was in New Braunfels probably about 15 years ago. And Matt Cole and I took our second year students there. It was really interesting to walk through it and to see. The the the, the, the 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 different pieces of furniture, to see the tent itself, to see the size of it, and to firsthand be able to tangibly see and touch the pictures of Christ and the journey that was necessary to go through all of this into the Holy of Holies. And so I appreciate this. I appreciate the picture that God is giving us of our Savior that we may understand better who he is, what he does. The tabernacle was planned by God, showing his authority. He's in charge, not us. It's about him, it's not about us. He simply allows us to live and participate in who it's all about. Again, A.B. Simpson says this, the tabernacle... Is in no sense a human institution it should in every respect be organized constituted built up and equipped according to the pattern that Christ has shown us Jesus bids us to teach others this authority of God that is seen in the planning and the building and the use of the tabernacle is also seen in Christ his authority is seen I'm thinking of Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We could just stay there in that verse for a very long time. The implications of that for us, you know, as we get up in the morning and go throughout the day, that all authority... Belongs to Christ. And so he tells them, Go therefore. So we know what the therefore is therefore because of his authority. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what would he have us do by his authority? Teaching them to observe all that I command you. Teaching them to observe all that I command you teaching them to observe all that I command you and lo, the one who has the authority and the one that we are to learn all about is with us always even to the end of the age so his authority is ever-present I was um, we were in Canada last week spending time with family and we're listening to a New Year's sermon. A man who just loves the Lord, and you could tell. He laid out the scripture for us with thoughts of facing this new year. And he did a really good job of just giving us an overview of what this passage says, the nuts and bolts, the specifics of it, you could see his desire in his presentation of wanting to honor what was being said. But then he finished it by going through each age group in the congregation and really encouraging now, make this possible. Bear down, try harder than you did last year. And you know, we, were, we left and I I uh, looked at Lauren, and I said, Lauren, what do you think? And she says, Dad, it was lacking. I said, That's interesting. To read the Word, to properly be able to give overview of it, but then when it comes time to how it applies, the encouragement is try harder this year than you did last year. I understand. I get it. You know, that's a natural tendency for us, isn't it? Didn't quite get it last year. I'll try harder this year. We miss, we miss out the truth of Scripture throughout Scripture. That this life is about Him, His authority. It's how He created us in His image. How? By His life. Where? In us. And this is what we messed up, isn't it? And this is what he's all about restoring. And he shows it to us in the temple. And he says, okay, listen, I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. And this is how I will be approached. Because this is true of me. You will approach me my way. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. His authority. And we find as we go through this now, we will find that His authority is shown in Christ. So we've gone in to out. Now we're going to go out to in. Before we do that, are there any thoughts from you? Yes. into a replication of this as a, as a Christian, you just kind of walk into the Holy of Holies. Whoa! Mm-hmm. You know what? It, it's so different for us. Could you kind of expound a little bit on how how is it different and how are we okay to just step into the Holy of Holies? How are we okay? How, how are we comfortable doing mm. that? Mm. And like when you we went to yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think for myself, it, and, and there was to be honest, I think with all of us having having to say anything, just you know as the curtains pulled back and we're allowed to walk in, they even had certain stipulations. I don't remember what they were, but they had certain stipulations that they wanted us to observe in walking in. Um, and I appreciated that, only because it it, it helped to aid in thinking through. Now, what does this represent? But at the same time, the discussion that we had after with the students you know, was, was good, in that we, we are allowed in because of the, the picture that we're going to see of the, the, uh, the bronze altar, the bronze laver, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the incense, the veil itself all representing Christ because of the finished work because of what God has done in Christ we are allowed to enter in but i do think we still enter in with reverence we enter in with fear you know we enter in with awe and maybe that's a good question because i wonder you know how often how is it that we do miss the the truth that this is about him and not about us. How is it that we do miss this is about his authority and not us trying to help him out? How do we miss that but by losing that awe? You know, uh, Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. How easy it is for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. I mean, that was the original sin, wasn't it? And the day you take thereof, you will be like God? Yes? Kelly, I just thought about it. Uh, all of those things also are symbolic of the I am. The bread, mm. I am the bread. The candle is the light, I mm-hmm. am the light. The water, the blood, it's all Christ. That's, That's a great true. observation, yeah. That's a really good observation. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. Any other thoughts? So, Kelly, just one thing on as we're going through, like what Charlie had preached last week, he actually said that we're to live the crucified life, hmm. um, that even as we go through a representation of what the tabernacle is, to remember that it was Christ who gave us that ability. And and the priests from Leviticus, they you didn't talk about it, but he had on the turban, holy to the Lord, mm-hmm. right? So if we remember that, that that is that Christ is our ability to enter in, but it is only through Him. Mm-hmm. And there are consequences to those who bring their foreign fire, right? Right, right. Um, Or come not living that crucified life or not covered in Christ, as it were. Right. Yeah, very good. Anybody else? So, a question for you. So, no, he wasn't talking about this passage, oh, okay. yeah. It was it was a different passage, yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess I'm a little confused about what would the proper response be if try harder is insufficient? Okay. Well, did Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You know the answer, too. Trust me. <laughs> uh, let's just bend the knee. Well, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer tells us without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so, it's not, and you go to James and we find that we are to be busy doing, but it's the, the source of the doing that is what's important. You know, am I doing with total dependence on Christ, responding to him, or am I doing from my best idea and my best self-effort for him? There's a big difference. So I guess the addition that was lacking would be I need to do this in Him, in His power through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay. I think the other big thing is to to rest. Right? Mm. Yeah. That God does to do. Yeah. We rest. Right. We depend fully in Him, Mm -hmm. even for our own sanctification. Right. Which is an interesting thought because sometimes we make it all about. Personally, I, for a long time, you know, my prayers were, I want to be a fully integrated person where my actions and my thoughts are consistent with my heart, you know, and that was what it was all about for me. And one day I came to the realization that, you know what, God's going to do that. When hmm. He's ready to do that, hmm. you know, and it's not about me trying hard. Right. It's about me trusting in God. Now, that doesn't absolve me of responsibility. Right. Right. Uh, Trusting in His grace and that it's going to be sufficient. No, there's there's clear warnings in Hebrews chapter six and chapter ten that you don't do that. But I do think that there is a requirement to rest in God and fully depend on Him and on Christ as being sufficient for your salvation, and then to do the works out of that. Yes, yeah. making sure my motives are right. but this passage, if if your pastor was saying, this passage says, go, baptize, teach, those are all action verbs. There has to be a balance here. Right. If he was saying, go harder, baptize harder, teach harder, he was not out of line. Hmm. If he was saying, do it from the spirit of competition or profit or selfishness of any other form, he was. And the, the gist that was coming across was that do it out of, you know, try harder and basically your self-effort. Do this for instead of from. Turn with me to James uh, in Chapter 2. There's a, there, there, is a, there is a balance here. There, there, there can be, and I know for myself, coming to understand that Christ was my life, that I needed to rest in him. The book of Hebrews, chapters uh, uh, 3 and 4, very heavy emphasis on the rest that we are to know as, as believers in Christ. And when I came to understand this, I, I uh, kind of what Karen is, is warning against is that we can go, we can abuse that, this rest. And we almost feel like this life of Christ is something that just you know, oozes into our ear and moves us around and, uh, you know, tickles the vocal cords, makes us say the right thing, picks our hand up, moves it where it needs to be. And while I do believe there are times of supernatural use uh, the, of the Lord with us, uh, this is not the, the normal everyday activity. There is a balance We are to be doing, but the source of the doing makes all the difference. And so in James, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet... You do not give them what is necessary uh, uh, for their body. What use is that? It's almost like saying, well, trust Jesus. I know your house is burned down. I know that everything you owned is gone. Just trust Jesus. Be blessed. Just rest in Him. I am. You do it. But look, even so faith if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. Go ahead. Show me your faith. Show me your rest without the works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You see it as a work of faith, not a work for faith. One of the neatest illustrations that I have is, you know, we, you, you hear us quote from Major Thomas often, but, you know, Major Thomas went through a time in his life when he was very frustrated and angry with God. He became a believer when he was 12 years old at a camp, summer camp. That's why it was so close to his heart for his hill to have a summer camp. And he... Learned, it was, it was there that he learned that he needed to put his faith in Christ and not himself for salvation. And then he spent the, the, the next uh, years, throughout his teenage years, working really hard for God. He was a street preacher in downtown London. He was active in a lot of things. And in all the preaching that he was active in, he had never seen one person come to Christ. He was very frustrated and even angry with God for this. And he said said it like this, he was fit to quit. It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be, fit to quit on your effort. And it was there one night, sitting in a room, scripture started to come to his mind. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. For I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live. I strive, I labor, hmm. according to his power, which mightily works within me. And his life was revolutionized. It was from that moment on some really interesting things started to happen. He, was, uh, th- he said before coming to this, he, he described himself as being a windmill of activity. Being so busy, but busy doing nothing that, can you identify with that? And after coming to understand that it was no longer up to him to live for Jesus, it was all for Jesus to be Jesus in him, that he was free then, He was free then to work, he was free to be active, he was free to go about the things that he saw, the needs that he saw before him, because it was the Lord's business, not his. He could trust the Lord for what the Lord would do. He could rest in his activity. And it was from there that he went on to preach. Cape and Ray Hall was founded, and then 24 other centers around the world. He traveled around the world constantly preaching. He was only home three weeks out of the year at the height of his ministry. He had so many air miles with, it was uh, Continental back then, Continental Airlines. He had so many air miles that he actually had more air miles than any other customer in the company. They used him in an advertisement. They had him stand next to a ticket counter with a stack of tickets. And I... I guess he had time to get off the plane, stand by the tickets, have his picture taken, and then go get on the next plane. I talked to one of his aides that he affectionately called mules. I hear that Major doesn't sleep much. Is that true? And he says, oh, that's very true. He said, I go to bed really late because of all that I have to do and he's still at the desk working. When I wake up early in the morning to get started on my work that I didn't finish the day before, he's still at the desk. I said, when does he sleep? He said, he sleeps on the plane between churches. Really? The activity of rest is a reality because of the finished work of Christ. And You know, Tom, this is how we, with reverence, can enter into the Holy of Holies. We can enter in and commune with with our God because of the finished work of Christ. We can rest in our activity because it's His authority and He's with us. Any other thoughts? This is a great stopping place. Because we've looked at the nuts and bolts, now we're going to look at the application next week. So Jeff gets another week off. He can recuperate. All right. So no more thoughts. Thanks for the questions and the input. Thanks for listening. I know that's a hard thing because I have to do that a lot too. Let's pray. Would somebody like to lead us? Anybody? I would just uh, thank you for your-